Would you please find your way to Mark chapter 2? Mark 2, we've been working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. Finished chapter 1 last week, so here we are. We're going to cover the first 12 verses today and see Jesus' authority over paralysis, another disease, another physical malady. But of course, we're also going to see his authority over sin. As we approach the beginning of this section, this section runs from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. And if you want to outline it, a, a, a big scale outline, you're going to see that there are points of conflict between Jesus and the authorities, the scribes and Pharisees. We'll see them introduced today. So this first section, the point of conflict is forgiveness of sin. They're going to take issue with Jesus over sin and who can forgive sins. And then in the next section, we're going to see a transition from talking about sin to talking about sinners. And they're going to have a problem with Jesus because he is eating with sinners. We'll also see the call of Levi or Matthew next week in that section. And then they're going to have a problem with Jesus that he isn't fasting. He is not staying away from food. And then after that, they have a problem that the disciples are eating because they're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the main problem isn't that they're plucking heads of grain. It's that it's the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath, yes. And then the beginning, that first little section of chapter 3, he heals someone on the Sabbath, the nerve that Jesus would do good on the Sabbath and, again, work. So he's going to keep running into problems, conflicts, disagreements with the religious leaders. And this is the first of a set of five. And when we get later in the book of Mark, we're going to see another set of five. But this is the first one today. So you've had a chance to find it. If you would stand, and I'm going to read these first 12 verses for us. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You follow along, please. And again, he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go your way to your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you that you are a God who heals. You are a God who forgives. And we thank you for this opportunity 
to spend some moments together considering those truths today. Father, I know this is a familiar passage. There are others in the room who could get up and teach this or have taught it. And yet we desire that your word, which is alive and powerful, would be fresh to us this morning. You are the bread of life. And as we taste and see that you are good this morning, may we enjoy fresh bread. May we enjoy a familiar story, but that has a timeless truth. Father, I praise you for forgiveness. Thank you for dealing with our sin. Thank you for doing what we could not do, and that is bringing us close to you, bringing us back to you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for his love and compassion and kindness, even to the religious leaders. He was long-suffering with them. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher of this passage. So would you please use me? Allow me to be clear. Allow me to be accurate. And show us how you want us to respond. How you want us to change as a result of spending this time in your word this morning. May we be hearers this morning. And may, us, may we not stop there. May we be doers that we would obey what you show us today. So speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I studied this this week, I was trying to figure out what are the main points. Is there more than one main point? Because to me, the one that stands out is about sin and forgiveness. That seems really obvious. And as I looked at it again this morning, I decided that there were two ideas that I want to share with you. So the first is when Jesus comes, sin leaves. We're going to see that in verse 1 and verse 5. If you put them together, you'll see that when Jesus comes, sin leaves. But number two, a critical heart cannot worship. And that's a little more subtle, but I believe it's there in verses 6 through 8 and then verse 12. So if you'll go back with me, to verse 1, we'll take it from the top and we'll go verse by verse through this section. It says in verse 1, and again he entered Capernaum after some days. He entered Capernaum. Well, from where? From the surrounding villages. If you remember from last week, if you were here, or if you just look back at the end of chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus could not minister in the towns, in the cities for a little while. Why? Because he had healed that leper. And he told the leper, go show yourself to the priest and don't tell anybody else. And what did he do? He told everybody else. And for a while, Jesus could not minister because the crowds just kept gathering. Everybody wanted to be healed. Everybody wanted to be cleansed. And that was important for Jesus to do that, but that was not the main reason he had come. Why had he come? To preach the word. So for in order for him to do that, he went out into the wilderness for a time. We don't know how long. From the description and how many towns were involved, it could have been weeks, it even could have been months. But for some period of time, he was gone, and now he came back. It says, and again, he entered Capernaum. He had made that his headquarters there on Lake Galilee. After some days, we don't know how long, and it was heard that he was in the house. In the house. Jesus is in the house. That's how it struck me every time I heard it or read it this week. And literally, it means he was at home. 
Whose home? We don't know for sure. Mark didn't tell us. It is probable, certainly possible, that this is Peter's home. That that's where his headquarters were, that when he stayed in Capernaum, that he was staying in Peter's home, or some people think it was Peter's mother-in-law's home, but the family homestead for Peter. That may be where he was when this took place. And verse 2, we get our first immediately for today. I believe there are three, if I remember right, in this section. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Many gathered together. There was no longer room. This is foreign to us. My family and I went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and when we got home, we came home on a Friday afternoon, early evening, something like that, we didn't have all the neighbors just come flocking to our doors. Probably you don't either. But in the Middle East, even to this day, hospitality is a big deal. And they wouldn't have waited to be asked. Once they found out, oh, Jesus is back, they would just all come. They wouldn't expect whoever was the homeowner, Peter or somebody, to send them a little invitation or say, hey, would you like to come by next week? No, they just came. They flocked together. And there were so many of them that there was no room. Somebody estimated there may have been 50 people. I don't know. However many there were, they crowded into the house, and then they were hanging out the windows and, and the doorways. Because you think about it, if this room were to, wouldn't that be great if this room would fill up? But if this room were full, people could still stand in the doorway, right? It's saying there wasn't any, even any room to stand in the doorway. There were that many people present. Why were they there? There's a good chance they came to see Jesus, to see somebody get healed. They may have been looking to be healed themselves. But what we have is a standing room only crowd. The doorways are blocked with people. And what did he do? Did he start another big healing service? Not at first. What does it say he did? It says that he preached the word. And when we've seen that word preached so far in chapter one, it has normally meant to proclaim, to herald. It's what we normally think of as to preach. This is not that word. This is the word to speak. He's in a home. Imagine him in the kitchen or the living room, and he, he may be sitting down, and he's just speaking the word conversationally. Probably not yelling, maybe not even ra raising his voice, however loud it would have taken for everybody to hear him, I would imagine. But what is he doing? He's preaching. He's speaking the word. Well, what would that be? Based on what we hear in chapter 1 from Mark, he is speaking the good news. What is the good news of the kingdom? The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is repent and believe. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. So he's telling them the good news. At the end of chapter 1, we saw that he was there to preach, to spread the good news. And that was his ministry. It was centered on teaching and preaching the good news of turn from your sin, turn to God. So do we have his words recorded? Do we know what he said? No, but it was probably along those lines. It's possible that the people there sensed that something was going to happen. Maybe you're reading a book or watching a movie, or maybe you've been in a, an event and you could just sense something was going to happen. There was electricity in the air. You say, why do you think that, Bob? Well, the story as Luke relays it, says that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. So maybe people had a, a sense of expectation. Something was going to happen. Verse 3 says, Then they came to him. Who's they? 
Again, if we were marking this in English, if we were grading this paper, there's no antecedent, there's a problem. But we find out who they are by the time we get to the end of the verse. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So all of a sudden, Mark introduces five characters. Four people, Mark's the only person who tells us that, four people, four men, who are carrying another guy who is described as a paralytic. These men, I'm going to call them his friends, because the way they're acting, they have to be friends. These friends are bringing him to Jesus because they believe he can heal their friend. What we're seeing here is a deep concern. And they didn't just say, okay, we've heard that Jesus is in town. We're going to pray that you get to meet him. We're going to pray that he, he walks by where you beg, if that's what he did. They weren't just going to pray about it. They were going to put feet to it. They were going to act on his behalf. And furthermore, when they got there and it was crowded and they couldn't get through the crowd and they couldn't get their friend to Jesus, they weren't put off by that either. Some of us have more of a negative disposition that I, I can see the problems. This is why this won't work. We're just going to have to try another day. There are just too many people got there before we did. Let's go home. Let's try it. No. They're being resourceful. They're being creative. They're being ingenious to how are we going to get him to Jesus? They didn't give up easily. They were persistent. Now, what are they doing? They're bringing their friend to Jesus. And some of you may have unsaved friends. We're going to see in this passage that the paralytic acts as a symbol for all of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. Helpless. And what are the friends doing? They're bringing him to Jesus. See, we cannot save our friends, but we can bring them to Jesus. They couldn't heal their friend, but they could bring him to Jesus who could heal him. The man is described simply as a paralytic. What does that mean? That's a big word, fancy word. It means that he couldn't move his legs, at least. And some people think maybe he couldn't move his arms or his legs. He may have been quadriplegic. But he was lying on a bed. Whatever the case, his paralysis, his inability to move or to feel, was severe. He was bad. So he is a picture of how we were. How hopeless without Christ. He could not get to Jesus by himself. And what's more, the four friends couldn't do anything to help him except to do what? To bring him to Jesus. So figuratively, our job with any friends we have who don't know Jesus or who are far away from Jesus is to help bring them to Jesus. That could mean bringing them to church, but it just means telling them the good news, encouraging them, helping them in any way that we can. So these four friends were not going to be put off. They were going to bring their friend to Jesus because they believed Jesus could help. We're at verse 4. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When it says they uncovered the roof, 
Most homes back in those days, they were flat. The roof was flat. Why? Because it became an extra room. In nice weather, you may sleep out there. You certainly would entertain, kind of like we would do with a porch or a deck. Same idea. They used it. And often, there was a stairway, at least a ladder, but usually a stairway on the outside of the house to get up there. So what they're thinking is, okay, we can't get into the house. Let's go up on the roof. And when it says that they uncovered the roof, the way these roofs, many of them were made, there would be trusses, and across the trusses you would put branches, sticks, some sort of support, and then they would have slabs of clay, dried clay. So imagine a big brick, it's probably maybe more like a paver, I don't know, it's not super heavy, but something that they would put piece it together like a big puzzle, and then they would put wet clay, something to smooth it over and make it waterproof and fill in the gaps, and that was the roof. So when it says that they broke it up, they were digging through that layer that was on top that made it all waterproof, and once they got to that point, they could lift out one, two, however many slabs they needed to in order to fit his bed and the paralytic down in there. Somebody said, wouldn't you love to have such loving, persistent, creative friends? They weren't going to give up. They were going to get him to Jesus. When it says bed, some of your Bible translations have a different word. They may have mat or even pallet. Stretcher would be the idea. So this is not, many of us would have a bed at home that may have um, uh, feet, legs, wheels, something, some sort of support underneath it, and you may have a mattress. You may even have a box spring and mattress. Don't imagine that. That is not what they were carrying him on. It is much more like a cot or, if you've seen, a stretcher, something that uh, an emergency worker would use, uh, more like a gurney, that type of thing. That was the idea. It may have simply been a thick blanket, and they were holding the four corners. could have been that simple. But that's what they're holding that's called here a bed. When they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. I really liked what David Guzik wrote about that. This proved the determination and faith of the friends of the paralytic man. They counted on Jesus healing their friend. Why? Because it would be a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof than lowering him down. So they were counting on him being able to walk out of the room of his own accord. Now we're about to see that Jesus saw their faith. It says he saw their faith, but he also saw more than the other people would have seen. If you and I had been there, what would we have noticed? All right, this is weird. Somebody's coming through the roof. If it was Peter's house, imagine what he was saying or what his wife was saying or what his mother-in-law was saying. What is, this is going to cost a lot. Who's going to fix this? So that's the scene. Jesus is teaching in my imagination, at least, I imagine Jesus is calmly teaching and, and he's not put off by the interruption. He's, he's going to take care of this. But when he looks at the man, he doesn't just see the obvious. What would be obvious to us? This man is paralyzed. He can't move his legs. Maybe he can't move his arms. He's helpless. We would have seen that. That's the outside. That's what we see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And Jesus saw not just the external, the physical need that would have been so obvious to all of us, Jesus looked at him and he saw a spiritual need. And that's what he addressed first. Let's look at it. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
Now, is that what you would have expected Jesus to say? That would have caught me off guard. I would not have expected him. I don't think the friends who are still probably looking down through the hole in the roof would have expected him to say anything about sin. No, we brought him to be healed. Could we please get him healed? That's why we brought him. That would have been my response if I had been one of the friends. But it says there, Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith did he see? At the very least, the four friends. He saw their faith, the ones who had carried their friend and seen, we can't get in. We're going to go up on the roof. We're going to dig out the roof. We're going to lower our friend, try to figure out exactly where Jesus is sitting or standing so that we lower him right in front of Jesus. It's possible that it's also talking about the faith of the paralytic, but it's at least the four friends. Now, here's a question. If it says he saw their faith, how did Jesus see their faith? Action. By their works. Some of us have been studying James, the students and the men. Chapter 2 talks about, James says, show me your faith without works, if you can. I will show you my faith by my works. How did Jesus see their faith? By the good work that they were doing on behalf of their friend right then. They are showing compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is love in action. It is love being acted out. So genuine faith, that's what Jesus saw, their faith, it works. It does works. It's not passive. In the same way that love, compassion, it acts itself out. It works. Now just so that we're all clear, the faith of these four men did not heal their friend. Whatever faith he did or didn't have did not heal him. Modern times, if you were to observe on television or go to a healing service, much of the emphasis of of those who want to make a big deal out of, we're going to have a healing service, this is the way it's going to work, they, they protect themselves. If I were up here as a healer and you don't get healed, then you just didn't have enough faith. And they put it off on that person. That is not what's going on here. It's not that the friends had so much faith, the four who were up on the roof, that he had enough faith. They had some faith. And Jesus worked. We see later in the Gospels, that father who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Often, more than once, Jesus said of his disciples, you of little faith. God, grow our faith. Please increase my faith but it isn't up to my level of faith. There's a whole lot more at work. I need to have the faith to call on God. These four friends had the faith to bring their friend to Jesus because they believed Jesus could do something to help. So what did Jesus do? He wasn't really, he saw their faith, but he wasn't acting exclusively because of their faith, and it certainly wasn't his own faith that saved him or healed him, but Jesus was going to deal individually with the one in front of him the paralytic. And he was going to do so after recognizing their faith. So here we come back to our first main point. When Jesus comes, sin leaves. Jesus came back to Capernaum. Jesus came to the house. A crowd of people came to the house. Four friends of a paralytic brought him. So all of this has converged, and here we are. Jesus has come. He's there on earth performing his ministry, public ministry, 
But beyond that, sin must leave. At some point, Jesus would have had to acknowledge the what we would call an interruption and pause his teaching. And now he's going to see they have faith and he's going to address the man. He calls him son, which is a term of endearment, a term of affection. It, it's showing a parental attitude. It's not to say that he was a little boy. Probably not. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But he's showing a connection, an affection for this man. And what does he say to him? Your sins are forgiven you. Why did he say that? Well, he, he was addressing the greatest need. Let's start there. Whatever need you think you may have this morning, maybe it's a need with a friend. Maybe it's a need for money. Maybe it's a need for health. Maybe it has to do with your workplace. Maybe it's a relationship, family or friend, neighbor. Whatever you think your greatest need is this morning, if you think it's anything other than your sin problem, you're wrong. Because Jesus saw the person in front of him and he addressed the greatest need inside him. Whether or not that man knew that was his greatest need. Whether or not he would have agreed with Jesus that it was his greatest need. That's where Jesus went first, to address the greatest need that that man had. But beyond that, Jesus was correcting some false teaching, some error. Because, as I mentioned last week in connection with the man who had leprosy, the common thinking of that time is that sin had directly caused whatever sickness, disease, deformity that you had, that there was sin behind it. And, all right, theologically, yes. The reason that there's death, the reason there's sickness, the reason there's disease is sin. But Jesus taught us, through the man who was born blind, and perhaps we could infer it here, is that there may or may not be sin involved. We don't know. There are some, some people who think that this man may have been sinning when he had whatever accident left him paralyzed. That's possible. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us. The Holy Spirit didn't tell us. So we don't know whether there was any particular sin that this man had committed. But we do know from looking at other scriptures that there's not necessarily a sin that you are being judged for that. Ultimately, how is our sin judged? It is judged at the cross. Those of us who are believers in Jesus, our sin has been judged when the Father's wrath was poured out on Jesus the Son, when he was crucified in our place. So please, if you or a loved one is facing a trial, a disease, cancer, facing something chronic, please do not automatically assume or let them, don't let them assume that, oh, God is getting me. I committed such and such a sin and this is judgment. There are consequences for our sin. We, we talked about that actually at the men's Bible study this week, that, that the Lord chastens, corrects those he loves. If we are his children and we're doing wrong, we're going astray, he will bring us back. But we can't assume 
especially on behalf of somebody else. Oh, I know why he's paralyzed. He did such and such. Or maybe it's a secret that I don't know what he did, but I know he did something. That, that's not the idea here. Warren Wiersbe said that not all sickness is caused by sin, but perhaps this man's condition was a result of his disobedience. We don't know. But even before he healed the man's body, Jesus spoke peace to the man's heart and announced that his sins were forgiven. And this is the reason I shared the first part with you. This is the quote that you may want to write down. I have it on the screen for you. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and most lasting results. When you look at all of the amazing things that Jesus did, and there are a lot. John said if we had written down everything that Jesus did, it would have filled all the books in the entire world. All the books wouldn't be enough to hold everything. So we don't know the countless number of people that he healed of blindness, or they were deaf, or we know that at least some were mute. They couldn't speak for whatever reason. Or someone who was paralyzed like this man. Or someone who had leprosy like the person we saw last week. Or someone who was demon-possessed like we saw the week before that. An amazing number of miracles. And, and we keep reading. Mark emphasizes the response of the crowds. They were astonished. They were amazed. They glorified God. They should. We would have as well. I hope we do. But what is the greatest need? To deal with the sin problem. And what is the greatest miracle that he can do for us? To forgive. To come and pay the penalty for our sin in our place so that we can have eternal life with God. So let's look at this word forgiven for a minute. First, I want to show you, if you have your Bible open or scroll up your screen, whatever you need to do, I'm going to show you four verses from chapter 1 where the same Greek word has appeared so far. Our word is forgiven, or your sins are forgiven. So Mark 1.18, they, Simon and Andrew, immediately left or forsook their nets and followed him. That's our word, left. Same thing, a couple verses later, verse 20, and immediately he called them, that's James and John, and they left or forsook their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. A few verses after that, Mark 1.31, so he came and took her, that would be Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left or went away from her and she served them verse 34 then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he did not allow or suffer or permit or let the demons speak because they knew him so the same word that we're so familiar with forgiveness forgiven to forgive it means these other things as well. It means your sins are going to leave. I'm not going to allow them to stay. So I'm going to say it this way. The verb translated are forgiven means your sins have been sent away. They have left. They have been omitted. They have been dismissed. They have been deleted. They have been laid aside. They have been blotted out. We talked about that back at Easter time. It's very good news. I hope that's encouraging you today, but I'm not finished. And I'm not finished with this idea of forgiven. So let's look at some Old Testament verses. The first one was in our scripture reading. Psalm 103, verse 12. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What does he do with our sin? He removes it. He gets it out of the way. That's what he was doing for this man. I am removing your sin from you. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He blots them out. He erases them. He deletes them. And just as importantly, he doesn't bring them back to mind to remember them against us. Jeremiah 31, 34, similar idea. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's not that God can forget in the sense that we forget. I forgot to pick up milk at the store. But he can choose not to remember it. He can choose not to bring it back up against us. And that's what he does. Micah 7.19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So if we take Micah and Psalm together, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. We said in our scripture, and we talked about it briefly, as far as the east is from the west. Because in terms of our globe, if I go north far enough, I'll start going south. But I can go east or west. Am I going the right way? Yeah, I'm going east. East forever. You can go east and west. That's how far. Into the deepest part of the sea. That's where he has buried our sin. Are you glad of that this morning? Do you have forgiveness of your sin? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what he does to our sins. He removes them. And that's what that word would have meant to this man and everybody who was listening. But not everybody was happy to hear that. And that's our second point. A critical heart cannot worship. Verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? First time we've seen the scribes in this book of Mark. The scribes were professional interpreters of the law. And they were especially into traditions. What was passed on verbally and codifying and and clarifying everything just so that we know how we can keep the law just right so perhaps beginning with a good intention but ending with a real burden and so we'll talk about them more as we go but they are sitting there that's also interesting to me because remember it's a standing room only crowd so they are afforded some honor perhaps because they're sitting when everybody else probably in the room is standing and what are they doing they're reasoning in their hearts They're thinking critical thoughts in their own minds, but at least so far, they don't have the courage to say them. They're not voicing what they're thinking, but they sure are thinking it. I can't believe he would, who is this guy that he would, that's the kind of thing going on in their hearts, in their minds. What are they saying? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Blasphemy means to slander to speak against someone, and usually we use it in the context of God, speaking against God. What was the penalty for blasphemy? Old Testament law, Leviticus tells us, it was death by stoning. That was the penalty for blasphemy. So this is a serious charge that they're raising against him in their hearts. And then they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? That was a true statement. Their doctrine is correct. No one can forgive sin except God. And one of my commentaries said that in Jewish thinking, even the Messiah could not forgive sins. That would 
That would be a new idea to them. God and God alone had the authority and right to forgive sin. So they understood what Jesus was saying. If he could forgive sins, he was God. That could be lost on us. We don't necessarily jump quickly to that conclusion, but that's what Jesus was saying, and they got the point. He says, your sins are forgiven, and they're saying, who could say that? You have to be God to say that. And that's, where, that's the part they missed. They got the part right that only God can do that. They missed the part that he is God. Verse 8. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? He perceived in his spirit that they reasoned this way within themselves. What's he doing? Modern terminology, he's reading their minds. That's what he's doing. He's reading their minds. This is something that he, as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, he could do that. He could tell what they were thinking. And since they were so interested in reasoning, he decided to give them something to reason about. Okay? You like thinking? You like being critical in, in what you're thinking? Here's a question. Which is easier? And, and by the way, so often Jesus would ask his own questions. That was typical. They would ask a question. He would ask a question back. That's how the rabbis, the teachers of that day, typically would have a logical argument. So they ask their question, and he asks them counter questions. That's what's going on here. So his counter question is this. Which is easier? And he, he poses the two questions. Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say, get up and walk? Now, which one's easier? Which one is easier to prove? To get up and walk. To get up and walk is much easier to prove, because I can, I can get up and say, your sins are forgiven. Who in the, in the room can say whether that person's sins are forgiven or not? Only God knows. But if there were somebody here who were, he, he's injured, he cannot walk, he cannot move his legs, and I say, arise and walk, and he gets up and walks, that's proof. So in Jesus' question of them, which is easier? Well, obviously it's easier to say the spiritual one. To say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that right away. Nobody, that's hard to prove. So when he says, arise, take up your bed and walk, that, can't, that can be proven or disproven on the spot because everybody's going to see it happen. Both questions, both ideas would be impossible for us as humans. I cannot, in my own strength or ability, say, rise up and walk, and I can't say, your sins are forgiven. I can't do that. But Jesus is God. So he can do both. In fact, they're both easy for him. He doesn't work up a sweat to do these things. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And if you start looking at commentaries and study Bibles, there's some disagreement on this statement, whether Mark added it as a parenthetical or not. 
It's a true statement either way, so I'm not going to spend time on that. But that you may know, in order to prove that I have the power to forgive sins, I'll show you that I have the power to heal. That's the idea that I see from that. And he describes himself here as the Son of Man. The first time that appears, it will appear a total of 14 times in the book of Mark. Some 80 times when you take the Gospels as a whole. And as that term is used in the Bible, it is almost always, I think there are two exceptions, almost always Jesus is describing himself. It seems like it was his favorite way of describing himself as the Son of Man. Did you ever wonder why? I wondered why. They were expecting a Messiah, and specifically they were under bondage to Rome at the time. So their idea was a king, a Messiah, someone who's going to overthrow Rome and give us our nation back and let us have our borders and our own king. He is the king. That was their idea of what a Messiah was. So when he describes himself as the son of man, that actually goes back to Daniel, the book of Daniel, verse seven, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can look it up on your own, where it says son of man. That's referring to the one who is coming to God the Father. It is the one who is accepted by. So it is a messianic reference. It is describing the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, but using a different term on purpose so that it's less confusing. So he's choosing to describe himself this way for the same reasons we talked about last week, that he couldn't uh, minister in the towns anymore. He had to go out into the wilderness because they would have wanted to make him king right then. There are other places, especially in John, talks about they wanted to make him king. And he just passed through them because it wasn't time yet. So he's choosing to call himself that. That's what he liked. It was a term that could not easily be misunderstood or attacked. Son of man describes him as being fully human. Son of God, of course, is that he is fully God. So he's saying the son of man has power. That should sound familiar if you've been here, if you've been studying this along with us. This is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 22, verse 27 to describe Jesus' authority in his teaching and over demons. So it says the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. And we, we're just thinking, well, where else would he have it? No, don't miss that. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. John Phillips wrote, the Bible offers no hope of redemption beyond the grave. There are those who would teach that there's purgatory, that in-between, that, that for a while, until you've paid for your sins, you have to be in some place that's in limbo. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible te does not teach second chances. It teaches that if I'm a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. By the same token, if I'm not a believer in Jesus, if I'm not in Christ and I die, I'm going to a place of punishment and eventually hell. Phillips went on, we get our sins forgiven on earth or not at all. The only one who has power on earth to forgive sin is the Son of Man. So after making that statement, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he says to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your home, go to your house. That first command to arise would have called on his faith. He could have said, no, you don't know how long I've been paralyzed. 
You don't understand the full extent of my paralysis. My condition is very bad. No. Did he have the faith to believe that Jesus could heal him? And if he did, then all of a sudden there was feeling and there was strength and there was coordination and the ability for him to stand up, and he did. And then the second part called him further to be obedient. The first part was obedience, but it was primarily faith. The second part is pick up your mat and go home. And this was a test of obedience. Would he do that? Because remember, the last guy didn't. The leper went and told everybody. That was opposite of what Jesus had said. So these three commands that Jesus gives to the man, we have three responses in verse 12. Immediately, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Immediately, that's our third immediately for today. He arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all. It was an immediate and complete healing. It wasn't partial, it didn't take an hour or two to take effect. It was immediately, he got up, and he obeyed, and he went out. And if he did what the guy did in Acts, and he was walking and leaping and praising God, I don't know. It doesn't say, but I think he might have been. He obeyed. And everybody there, in light of what had just happened, in light of what Jesus had said, everybody there would have to realize he just got healed that means Jesus can forgive sin. And if they want to take it all the way, that means Jesus is God. So it says that all were amazed and did what? Glorified God. They glorified God. This is great. Praise God. Have you ever seen anything like this? That is their attitude. They were all amazed and glorified God. Literally, the amazed is they were out of their minds. They were hysterical. They were overjoyed, and they praised. They gave the glory to God because Jesus had just displayed the power of God, the authority of God. But I think all is kind of like the many earlier, and, and we've talked about this. Sometimes it's probably hyperbole a little bit because I don't think all of the people who were in the room were praising God and glorifying him. They were probably all amazed, but I don't think they were all giving glory to God. Why not? I don't think the scribes and Pharisees were. Someone wrote, the scribes and Pharisees could neither heal the man nor forgive his sins, so they were caught in their own trap. They were condemned by their own thoughts. They have a problem here. They're saying that Jesus is blaspheming. He is speaking against the one true God because he is claiming to do something that only God can do. And then Jesus said, so that you'll know that I can forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. And what did he do? He healed the man. Something they couldn't deny, something they had just observed with their own eyes. And they're trapped. Because they have to admit, we were wrong, he's not blaspheming, he's the real thing. Or, I didn't see what I just saw. So they're left to rationalize and reason some more in their own hearts and try to figure it out. And we'll see, see within another sermon or two that they're already wanting to destroy him. That's their answer. This author went on and said, what an opportunity they missed 
when they came to the meeting with a critical spirit instead of with a repentant heart. That criticism, that refusal to humble themselves. In this case, realize they were wrong and recognize Jesus as the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. They missed out on the worship. They didn't have anything to worship God for. They're just sitting there mad. So what are the two main ideas from this section? When Jesus comes, sin leaves. When Jesus comes into our lives, sin leaves. Does that mean that we never sin again? No, I wish it did. It doesn't. We still have a sin nature. We battle with our flesh day in and day out for as long as we are remaining on this earth. But in the same way, when Jesus comes, when his spirit is living inside me, then there's a process. We call it sanctification in which I'm going to become more like Jesus day in and day out. Yes, I'll stumble. Yes, I'll have a setback. Yes, I'll sin. I'll have to confess that, agree with God that that was sin. Thank you for forgiving that sin. But that's what the Christian life looks like. When Jesus comes, sin's got to leave. Is that true in your life today? Have you ever allowed God to deal with your sin problem? Because, see, that's the greatest problem that any of us has. Whether we know it or not, my biggest problem is not the circumstances that I'm facing right now, not the trial that's been coming back to your mind over and over this past week, maybe even while I've been preaching this sermon. You just can't get this out of your mind, this relationship problem, this job problem, this money problem, this health problem. It's on your mind. You just can't get rid of it. Ultimately, that's still not our greatest problem. Our problem is that there is a holy God who created everything and gets to make the rules, and I have not kept his rules. And so I am dependent on him to provide an answer, to provide a rescue. And he did. He did that in Jesus, his son, who came, lived a perfect, sinless life for about 30, 33 years, somewhere in there, and then was still crucified. He was executed in my place to take the penalty for my sin. That's how I get forgiveness. I believe, I call on him, and I receive his forgiveness. What does he do with my sin? Wipes it out, removes it. Have you come to him? Have you asked him to do that? Because as soon as you ask him, he will. He will deal with your sin because he's already done with it. So there may be someone here today, you need to come to Jesus for the first time and say, take my sin from me. Forgive me. I am claiming the blood of Jesus to cleanse my sin, to wash me clean. And he'll do it. If you're a believer, you've already done that. Do you recognize Jesus' ability to deal with your sin? Our lives should not be characterized by ongoing sin. I said a minute ago, we'll stumble, we'll fall. A righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. But as a saved person, we should not be comfortable in our sin. We should not be continuing in our sin. We should be forsaking it, turning our back on it. So what sin or sins do you need to turn your back on this morning and come back to God through Jesus? What if you are among the religious leaders in this passage? You, you saw yourself this morning that you have a critical spirit. That's just another sin to confess and forsake. These folks lost out on the opportunity to
praise God and glorify him with the rest of the congregation. If you have a critical spirit, it will steal your joy. It will prevent your worship as we saw in this passage. So what do you do? Same thing. You confess it. You forsake it. You come back to him. He is the one who has the power and the authority to forgive sin. So come to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I need Jesus to deal with my sin problem. I need him to do a work in my heart and life today. Will you pray for me? I'm not going to call out your name or embarrass you or make you come up here or anything else. But if that describes anybody in the room, child or adult, if you would like me to pray for you, would you simply slip your hand up, put it back down? Anyone? Is there a believer here this morning that the Holy Spirit is pinpointing something in your life, some type of sin, and you want to be rid of it? You're confessing it to God this morning. You're forsaking it. You're repenting of it. Is there anyone that that describes and you'd like me to remember you in prayer? Same thing. Lift your hand, put it back down. Yes, yes. Anyone else? Father, you are good. You are kind. You are faithful. You are so merciful. And so, Lord, I pray for these this morning. You're dealing with a sin. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is, and the Holy Spirit is speaking. So I thank you for the tender hearts that are obeying, and I pray that you would pour out your grace so that they would know your forgiveness, your cleansing, how good it is to know that our sins are forgiven, to know that they are taken from us, that they are removed from us, they are blotted out. We thank you for that, Lord. May it be real to us today and through this week. In Jesus' name, amen.